Good morning. I'm the, the famous Dave Matthews. <laughs> Autographs later. I only charge $100 an autograph. I expect at least 500 of you. Um, I'm so honored to be here and share from my heart this morning some things that uh, are very dear to me. Uh, they're dear to you too. I love that today's baby dedication is a perfect timing for what I'm going to talk about. Uh, because, you know, there's a lot of things in life that are not good, right? And everyone in here has experienced loss and pain. On October 3rd, 2007, my wife and I lost a grandson named Josiah David. I think he has a great name. He didn't live long on this earth. And uh, when we saw the pain of our son and his daughter and his uh, uh, wife, and the grief they were going through, and our own grief. Uh, at that time, I was preaching for the downtown church in Searcy, Arkansas. It's a little city. It's the mecca of, you know, of Arkansas. Oh. <laughs> you know, there's Abilene, and there's Searcy, and there's Nashville. Uh, so anyway, when I went back, after a week of dealing with all of that and holding our son in his arms as he wept and wept and wailed, I didn't want to preach. I was angry at God, and I believe I had every right to be angry at God, and we're going to get into that later. Anybody else been angry at God? Ever? Believe me, it's okay, because really good people in the Bible were angry at God and expressed it. So it's okay. So I went back and I had to preach. So for two years I crawled into the pulpit trying to preach about a loving, powerful God that answers prayer. I had preached when I got to downtown probably for two months on prayer. Then Dr. Albert Lemons came and did a prayer workshop on the weekend after 9-11. We had 500 people there all day Saturday. He, he was incredible. Uh, he was my first Bible teacher ever. Became a Christian in 69, went to Freed Hardeman, first class, Genesis, Exodus. What I thought was an old man stood up to teach. <laughs> he was 30-something years old. I had seen Patsy and him hold hands on campus. And I mentioned to one of my friends, look at that old guy and his wife. They still love each other. So to this day, I hold hands with my wife when we walk, all because of that couple. And the first words out of his mouth was, young people, it means more to God if one person serves him because they want to than if everybody served him because they had to. That was his first words that I heard that man speak. And since that day, he's been my mentor, he's been my hero, and really the hero is Patsy. We all know that, but I mean... <laughs> Albert was uh, long for the ride. He means the world to me and my family. He knows my son. That death sparked a course of life that has been filled with effects from that death in way too many ways to even describe. So as Debbie and I were coming back, and I had to go preach every Sunday and talk about a loving, powerful God that can do anything. 
But God did not answer the prayers for Josiah. He did not answer them the way we wanted them to be answered. He did not save him from death. And I was angry. And so I had to preach. But I wasn't a hypocrite. I told the church I was angry. I told them I was angry. And I didn't understand some things. And so Debbie and I decided, what are we going to do with this mess? And we believe this, that we cannot let our past define us and destroy us. But we can let our past propel us forward. And so we started Spark of Life with God's help. It's a 501c3 ministry to where we deal with grief all the time. That's why I started drinking. No. Okay. Please don't quote that over there. Please don't do that. So we started Spark of Life. We do three and a half day grief retreats all over the country. We do them now online and in person. We uh, just finished an online retreat last weekend. Uh, We've done 114 three and a half day retreats. We do grief workshops for churches. We've done about 75 of those uh, with about 7,000 people. We don't really count. I'm just trying to add up the numbers and I'm doing this for a reason. Uh, We do online stuff. online grief coaching or Zoom grief coaching. We got a fabulous team of people at the drop of a hat. If you, if you in need, you can call us. And if you know somebody in grief, just send them to sparkoflife.org. Just send them there. Um, but here's what grievers have taught us. Uh, they have taught us that there's always hope. They have taught us what true heroism is because true heroism is the ability to conjure up hope where there is no hope. Have you ever felt hopeless and helpless? Have you ever felt like God doesn't listen to your prayers? Anybody ever felt like that? That your prayers don't even go, well, this is a high ceiling. Don't even go to the ceiling. Doesn't go past the ceiling into heaven. I know you're bound to have felt that at times. Have you ever felt like God let you down? And God helped somebody else but not you? Well, I've been there and I've done that. And so this morning, I want to share with you some things that some people have taught us who are our heroes, about, you know, 1,600 people who have had all sorts of losses, and they've taught us not to give up. But here's the deal with the people we've worked with. At least half the people who come have a Christian background. Uh, I would say at least 90% of the people come who have a Christian background, and half of those have given up on God. And in three and a half days, we've seen people who have given up on God on Thursday night come back on Sunday with hope and hope because our retreats end on Sunday. Isn't that a great day to end a retreat? (laughs) Because Sunday means a lot. And so uh, I want to read you a passage that's become kind of our staple passage. It's from the book of Habakkuk. I'm going to end with Habakkuk and kind of begin with Habakkuk today. Here's what, how many of you have read Habakkuk in the last week? Raise your hand. How many of you can spell Habakkuk? (laughs) Here's what he said. How long, Lord, must I call for help and you don't listen? Anybody been there? I call for help and you don't listen. And Habakkuk goes on to say, violence, I cry out to you violence, but you don't say. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Can you imagine if you went to coffee with God at Starbucks and you told him, how long are you going to tolerate 
injustice and wrongdoing. Can you imagine saying that to God? Habakkuk did. He said it to God. Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife. Therefore, the law is paralyzed. Justice never prevails. The wicked, him and the righteous, so that justice is perverted. Habakkuk doesn't like it. And there's something about lament in Scripture. And nearly one half of the Psalms are lament Psalms. You probably know that. And lament, I can lament my sins. And I know you've probably lamented your sins. I've lamented mine. But there's another kind of lament when Walter Brueggemann says, in his study of lament, says that lament is, is powerful because lament basically says, why this God? Why me, God? Why didn't you intervene, God? You must intervene because you're the only one that can fix the problem. And I don't like what's happening, God. That's biblical lament. And it's all the way through Scripture. The greatest lamenter, in my opinion, was Jesus on the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's pretty powerful lament from a pretty powerful example, is it not? Because Jesus had such a relationship with God that he could pour forth his heart before God. God knows your heart. God knows I'm hurting today. We have spent a week and a half with Jeffrey Matthew Ham, our nephew. He's dying of a geoblastoma, stage four brain tumor. He's my sister's oldest child. He has a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old. He's at a live hospice right now here in Nashville. We spent the last week and a half hugging my sister, praying over Jeffrey, crying with his brother and his sister. A million prayers have gone up for that boy, and he's going to die probably today. How long, Lord, must I call for help? that you don't listen. I think you've all been there. I don't know why God hadn't answered those prayers the way we wanted. My God said, you, you come before me and pray and ask and it will be given to you. Whatever you ask in my name, it will be given. And yet, Jeffrey's going to die today. Maybe tomorrow. So Habakkuk had these feelings and these thoughts and he's lamenting and So God comes down and answers him in in verse (laughs) 2, in verse 5. He says, look at the nations and watch. Be utterly amazed, Habakkuk. I'm going to do something in your day that you would not believe me, even if you were told. I'm going to raise up the wicked Babylonians, and they're going to discipline my people. Have you ever cried out to God and you wanted to hear his voice? And some of you might have heard his voice. I've never heard his voice where I could record it. But I've tried. I've tried to hear his voice. I think if I prayed to God and and poured out my heart and then God came down and I knew it was God and he spoke to me, I think I would say, yes, sir. What about you? Well, Habakkuk didn't say, yes, sir, God. He didn't like God's answer. Don't you want to meet Habakkuk someday when you get to heaven? He was so confident in his relationship with God. He said, I don't like the answer. And so in chapter 1, verse 12, here's his second complaint. Habakkuk says, my God, are you not from everlasting? You will never die. You have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. I don't get it. Why do you tolerate the treacherous? 
Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Why, God? Why? Don't let anybody tell you it's wrong to say, why, God? Because it's full of why God's in the Scripture from people who have an intimate relationship with God. It's not a one-way relationship. It goes both ways, right? And so Habakkuk comes back, and he doesn't like the answer. So God finally says, okay, sit down, get your iPad out. I want you to send a message to your 30 closest friends. Have them send the message to their 30. Write it on your tablet. That's, that's in the Bible. All right, look, look, at, look at chapter, uh, what is it, 2, verse 2. Then the Lord replied. This is after, you know, I think God said, okay, I'm trying to be nice to you, son, but okay, here's the order. Write down the revelation. Make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. Here's the message. The revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end. It will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. Wait for it. Now, I don't know if you know this, but God's wiser than this guy. He was been there a long time. I know God exists. I want answers. Can we get answers on this side of eternity? What do you think? Yes, we can. Can we get all the answers? No, we cannot. <laughs> can we get enough of the answers? Yes or no? Yes, we can. I don't know... Who wrote uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the end of Deuteronomy and Moses' death? If Moses wrote it, good for Moses. I don't know who wrote it. In graduate school, we had to, uh, I, I had Jack Lewis. Anybody remember Jack Lewis? Dr. Jack Lewis? Does anybody remember him? You have to be old to remember Dr. Jack. Harding Graduate School in Memphis, Tennessee. And I wrote a paper on who wrote Isaiah. I wanted to say Isaiah. No, there's Deutero-Isaiah, Tridero-Isaiah. I don't know all that stuff. I don't know what Jesus, who he preached to. He went after his death to the prisons of, of the spirits. Do you remember this, Albert Lemons? Jesus preached to those souls, those spirits from Noah's day. I would love to have a recording of that one. I don't know that. I don't know what baptism from the dead means. I don't have all the answers to the divorce and remarriage question. Anybody else have all the answers? I don't, I don't know that. But I know one thing. Actually, I know two things. I know God is and that God loves me. That's what I know. That's what I know. Is that enough? Yes or no? Somebody say it. Yeah, it's enough. How do I know God exists? Because whatever started this thing had to be infinite. Whatever started, it had to be infinite. If you reject God because of unanswered questions, then uh, if you're an atheist, you have to reject atheism because atheists have unanswered questions. I don't know where the stuff came from that exploded. 
There could not be nothing and then something. There had to be always something, and that always something had to be infinite, whether you're an atheist, agnostic, or a theist. The uncaused first cause is a necessity. I know God exists, but I want to know what He looks like. There's so many representations, misrepresentations of God. At our Spark of Life retreat, we've had a few atheists come to the retreat because it's open to everybody. And uh, these people are wonderful people. One atheist came to this uh, retreat. She was a PhD post, doing postdoctorate work at a West Coast university, and she's researching the cure for Alzheimer's. She is, uh, no offense to all the other people who've come to the retreat, by far the smartest person that I've ever been encountered at one of our retreats. She is a delightful human being. And on Saturday night at the retreat, we sat down to eat. And we'd been there three days, and we're in this beautiful Colorado resort. And uh, we're, we're grilling out, and, and uh, Florence gets, sits beside me, and she says, uh, David, she's from Paris, France. And I can't do a French accent, okay. Uh, but David, um, you know I'm an atheist. And we had just announced that we had an optional prayer time communion service Sunday morning. And she says, I probably won't be coming to the prayer time tomorrow morning because I'm an atheist. Well, I said, Florence, I didn't know you are an atheist. Uh, and it's okay if you don't come. But by the way, she came to the prayer service. And I said, would you mind telling me why you're an atheist? And I said, she said, uh, well, yeah, I don't mind at all. She said, uh, when I was a little girl, my mother... Uh, had a sister, and my mother uh, came in one day and took my sister and told me, you're staying with your dad, and my mother left. She just left, and it was just me and my dad, and she grew up in Paris. Did I say that? And so it was Florence and her dad. Then Florence grew up, and she got educated. She's brilliant. She comes to the West Coast. She goes to a West Coast university in Los Angeles. She, she gets her doctorate degree. She does postdoctorate work, and her father is still in Paris, and he has cancer. So now, that's the only person on earth that loves her. And so she flies to Paris. She flies back to L.A., back and forth, taking care of her dad. They run out of money. They don't have any money. And, and she says, let's go to, I'll bring you to Los Angeles. They have better hospitals here. And she needed, he needed something, but she didn't have money. And somebody at work said, there's a group of Christians that meet. They're known to help people. So she goes to the group of Christians and this is what they told her. The reason your dad has cancer is because you're living with your boyfriend, you're not married, and you don't go to church. She says, that's why I'm an atheist. I said, I'm with you, kid. I don't believe in that God either. That's not my God. Is that your God? You know what my God would do? She said, what would your God do? I said, my God would hug you and love you as you are. I asked her what the meaning of life was for her. She said, I guess it's love. I said, I think we're a lot closer theologically than you think. What else is there? I said, what have you felt since you've come to this retreat? And here's what she said. She said, I have felt love from the time I pulled into the parking lot. I've been totally accepted by everybody here. I've been loved on, loved on, and loved on. Well, when she does get married to her boyfriend, guess who gets to walk her down the aisle? <laughs> okay, you can guess, but it's a famous singer. <laughs> it's 
famous singer. I love this girl. She's like a daughter to Debbie and me. She's getting closer and closer to God. See, misrepresentations of God hurt people. Uh, I had a good friend whose son had been sexually abused. And I was with him. And it, he decided to open up to another leader in our church. And so the other leader came and we're crying and we're praying. And the other leader said, God won't give you more than you can handle. Have you ever heard that one? Well, God won't give you more than you can handle. And I spoke up and I said, well, I just want to interrupt here. God didn't give sexual abuse to a little boy. And there's this teaching out there about the sovereignty of God, and I believe in the sovereignty of God, and it goes like this. Every single thing that happens, happens for a reason, and happens because God wants it to happen, because God is sovereign. That's a message from Satan. God does not want any kid to be sexually abused. Do you agree or not agree? He does not want suffering and pain, though it's necessary. He does not uh, sit there, and he's not like I dream of Jeannie, and all you old people remember Barden Eden? Barbara Eden, you remember her? I was in love with her. (laughs) Our view of God is like bewitched and whoever that was, Elizabeth Montgomery, I think I was in love with her too. (laughs) But it's not, our view of God is, okay, this person's going to abuse somebody. Uh, Okay, let's just do it. It's not quite that simple with God. Jesus wept at the tomb because he cares for this life and what you're going through. He cares about suffering. He doesn't like it. But God doesn't make people do bad things. We have free will. C.S. Lewis said free will must be a, a very big thing because it has sure caused a lot of problems. So it must be real important to God. And you know why free will is important to God. It's back to Albert Lemons and what he said that first day of class. God's responsible for the mess of the world, but he's not responsible for my sin. He is responsible for my choice to have sin. So he feels a heavy responsibility, but we have free choice because God is love. And he wants us to love him back. He somehow needs us to love him back, not to make him more perfect, but because love needs to give love and love needs to receive love. And, and John says that our love, God's love is completed when we love him and love each other. And see, love is, just goes with free choice, right? Free choice. Everybody get that. Love goes with free choice. And without love, there is no, without free choice, there is no love. So God's responsible but he's not to blame. Albert and I have a friend who accidentally shot his grandson many years ago. He's three years old. And uh, the father uh, and, and, and the grandson lived probably uh, seven or eight years, but he was, had hardly any brain function. His father, our friend, must have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars finding a cure for his grandson. None of you spent $100,000 to find a cure because you didn't know him and you weren't responsible. But the greater the responsibility 
the greater the response. God feels a heavy responsibility for us because He created us. He doesn't like what's happened. This world is not what God intended. It's necessary, but it's not what God intended. No, he's, He didn't do Lazarus a favor. He really didn't. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, He did it to prove and to, so people could believe that He's the resurrection and the life. And so, Lazarus, you know the story, and he comes back. Can you imagine the next day when, after all the hoopla, Lazarus calls Jesus and says, let's talk, and they meet down and they talk. And Lazarus says, Jesus, I really appreciate you raising me from the dead, but I was out of this world. I have to come back to this world. And I guess Lazarus died again, right? So, I have a friend who wants to raise people from the dead. She's, she'll be in line in heaven a lot, you know, way up front. And she came by my office one day and she said, David, I went to the hospital. This guy was dead and I prayed and he came back to life. And I said, praise God. Okay. So we talked about that and she knew our church and she knew our, our kind of brand of Christianity. And uh, she's very close. She got in trouble with her pastor because she kept coming to our church. And not there. It was pretty funny. Like you had to be there. Uh, but it, it was funny. But I told Cindy, and I love her to death. I said, Cindy, would you do me a favor? If you're alive when I die, please don't bring me back. She said, why? I said, Cindy, this world's full of pain. It's good. I mean, there's a lot of good. That's why I love the baby dedication. That's good, right? We need babies. But if I'm out of this world and I'm with my God, please don't call me back. Let me go. I was talking to my sister yesterday. My brother comes in. My brother, I've never heard him read scripture. Jeff's laying there. I'm on one side. My brother's on the other. My sister's in the room. My brother gets this Bible. He finds it. Somebody left it. And he starts reading the Psalms. He just keeps reading. Never heard my brother read the Bible. I'm not saying he doesn't. I've just never heard it. And I love that moment. And when it was done, after about 30 minutes, uh, we were talking, and my sister said, and, and we'd been telling Jeff, it's okay to go. It's okay to go. It's okay to go. And I told Ann, my sister, I said, you know, it would be real cool of God if he kept us on this earth forever. Do you agree with that? No, he doesn't want you to stay here forever. His number one priority is not to keep me alive on this earth forever. Yes or no? He can intervene. He has intervened. He will intervene when he chooses. But his number one job is not to keep me alive on this earth forever. His number one desire is for us to be together with Him. That is so clearly taught. I need to hear that over and over. And the message I want to leave with you this morning is though we don't have all the answers, we know this, God is love. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, Jesus who did no sin was made sin for us. 
And I I thought about that. That when Jesus went to the cross, in John 12, he says, Father, what shall I, he was talking to people and he said, what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? And he said, no, it was for this hour that I came. I will not say, Father, save me. In Mark 14, he says, Father, save me. In one case, he was talking with his mind. He knew why he had come. In the other case in Mark 14, he was speaking from his heart. His heart was broken. Why? Because he's about to enter darkness that he had never entered before. He had never sinned. He had never felt guilt. He had never felt shame. And on the cross, he's going to have all the sins of all of us on him. I cannot imagine the darkness. The holy of holies became the center of sinners, though he did no sin. Isaiah says that God crushed him, that God decided to crush his own son. I can't fathom it. Holy, holy, holy became sinful, sinful, sinful. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said only the highest of high could sink to the lowest of low. God's story is the perfect story. It has to be the greatest story. God only had one son. I wonder why he didn't have three. No, he only had one. He was his only begotten son. It's like God staged the story because he knew how tough this life is. And he knew it would take a a story of stories to rattle our bones and to shake us out of this worldly possession thing that we have to have things of the world all the time and fall in love no it had to take the best story and the greatest story and the greatest story is that the holy of holy became the world's worst sinner though he did no sin so the sun couldn't shine for those three hours I don't know what else the darkness stands for from 12 to 3 if not that you see the sun the sun created could not shine while the sun was dying. It couldn't shine. The greatest loss of all is the loss of God's Son because God willed it and God planned it and God desired it. And that means He loves you and me. I cannot imagine. Have you ever sinned and you hurt somebody you love? Anybody? How did you feel? Multiply that times billions, and that's what Jesus was feeling. Isaiah said there's nothing about his physical appearance that attracted us to him. He was the darkest of dark. I can't imagine. If you ever doubt God's love, if you ever try to run away from God, it's okay. It's okay. Because here's what will happen if you just keep your heart just a little bit open. Every time I tried to run away from God, and by the way, if it hadn't been for the paycheck, I hate to admit it, uh, there were Sundays when I was coming up to preach that I wanted to just go out the door and never come back. And if it hadn't been for my wife and kids, I probably would have done it. Every time I tried to run away from God, you know what I ran into? God. Every time. He's quite a God, isn't he? Some of you are hurting right now. Some of you have pain from the past. And I know you do. And I just want you to see the God who never, ever, ever stops loving you. So, Dennis and Terry 
are two friends of ours. They had one daughter, now they have no daughters. Many years ago, uh, their daughter was shot to death by her husband. Uh, it was in Memphis where the accident took place. They were from Searcy, still from Searcy. Uh, the funeral was uh, 5,000 people. It was awful. Uh, they were churchgoers, and he shot her and killed her. And uh, it's too long a story to get into, but uh, the, they got a call from her husband one Friday night that she had gone for a jog and hadn't come back. And so uh, the call went out. I got a call from his brother-in-law. Hey, Micah's missing. Dennis and Terry are going to Memphis. Get the prayer chain going. We prayed. Had everybody pray. A few hours later, the call came. Micah was dead. And the story was when Dennis and Terry drove the two hours to Memphis, she, uh, they, uh, they went everywhere looking for their baby girl. They couldn't find her. They, they searched for hours. They came back to the police station. By this time, there's 40 family members present at the police station and they still don't know where Micah is. They don't know that she's dead yet. And they're interviewing the husband in another room. And, and finally, he broke and confessed. And so they had to go and tell Dennis and Terry their, their, their baby daughter was dead. And so they, they, they make their way about 40 yards to the room where the family was. And the captain said, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Ryan, Casey, I need you to come in this room. They drove down, they walked down this foyer, they came to the room where the police detectives were, and there they were told that their daughter had died because of a gunshot from her husband, their son-in-law. And all the expected emotions, the screaming, the wailing, the numbness, the shock, the what, the everything. And then after about a minute, and they're hugging each other, and they're in disbelief. Dennis says, somebody has to go tell the grandparents, and somebody has to go tell the cousins, and somebody has to go tell the uncles. And he says, I'm the man, I've got to do it. So he starts walking by himself. If you knew Dennis, passive guy. And he's walking, and all of a sudden, he looks up to God, and he says, God, you don't know what it's like to lose a child. He said, oh my you do know what it's like. You do know what it's like to lose a child. If anybody gets it, he gets it. The greatest loss is God's loss and the son's loss. They did it on purpose because they knew the toughness of this life. So don't give up. There's always, always hope. So here's good old Habakkuk. I love Habakkuk. I want to meet him after I meet some other people. He's going to be in the top ten. I don't know how long it is between chapter two and three of Habakkuk. I have no idea how long it is. Remember, he's complained twice, and God says, take a note, take a note and run with it. And so now we get to the end of Habakkuk chapter three, verse 16. And here's the end of one of the greatest books in the scripture. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled because the enemy's coming. The Babylonians are coming to execute God's judgment, God's punishment. And here's what Habakkuk says. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. 
And though the fig tree does not bud, and though there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, though the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, everything's gone to hell. Everything's gone. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. We're in Montana. There's 16 grievers. Five families have lost kids to suicides. We're on Sunday morning. I'm reading Habakkuk chapter 3. 16 people. We have deer and elk everywhere around us. It's a beautiful setting. It's a Sunday morning. And I read, The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. And on cue, three deer are outside and they start doing this. Everybody saw it. And one of the women said, David, how do y'all do that? And I said, there's this little red button. It honestly happened. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go to the heights where you meet God with all your garbage, with all your pain, with all your hurt, with all your sins, with all your questions and all your doubts. And God will meet you there and he'll hug you. Let's go to the heights with God.